New Thinking Allowed. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to look at psychokinesis from a theoretical standpoint. I'm with Professor Stephen Browdy, former chairman of the philosophy department at the University of Maryland and author of The Limits of Influence, a book about psychokinesis as well as many other books on related topics including ESP and psychokinesis, The Gold Leaf Lady, Immortal Remains, Crimes of Reason, and also first person plural. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Psychokinesis, as, as we were discussing earlier, is something of a taboo within a taboo. Yes. One might say that all <clears throat> paranormal phenomenon and uh, parapsychological phenomenon are taboo topics, but even amongst parapsychologists, it seems that psychokinesis, and especially what we call macro psychokinesis, large-scale psychokinesis, is uh, a topic that people shy away from. It's just, uh, even for the b many of the boldest researchers, it's too bizarre, too unbelievable to, to deal with. And uh, I, this strikes me as a sociological phenomenon, but as a philosopher, I, I, I would think it's frustrating. It's very frustrating, but I think it's also intelligible. Mm -hmm. um, I know that most scientists and academicians don't like to admit that they're intellectual cowards, but I think there's an element of cowardice in all of this. Mm -hmm. And it comes from various different sources. You and I may have covered this in previous interviews, but it's worth reiterating. What I think is so particularly scary about um, psychokinesis of any kind, but particularly large-scale or macro-PK, is this. If I can move, let's say, a pencil, just a mere millimeter by thought alone, mm -hmm. it's a very small step conceptually from doing that to making somebody drop dead by thought alone. Yeah. So, what is particularly intimidating, just purely conceptually about PK, is that if it exists at all, um, we have no way of knowing ahead of time just how far its manifestations yeah. may go. And it raises the specter of a kind of having to accept a kind of worldview that most of us associate usually condescendingly with so-called primitive cultures. Mm -hmm. It's a worldview in which we have to think seriously about such things as hexing and the evil eye, and where we might in principle have to consider taking responsibility for a range of things we just as soon be bystanders for. Mm -hmm. So, in developed countries, um, most people are uncomfortable with the idea that if I have a hostile thought about somebody and that person has a misfortune afterwards or an accident, um, that our hostile thought might have had something to do with it. Right. Well, should people feel that it did? Well, what I think the real implication of macro PK or any PK mm -hmm. is, is that this magical worldview may actually be the right worldview. Mm -hmm. And it's, I find it unsettling. I don't like the idea. Well, we live here in the United States in a uh, <coughs> modern society, but, uh, Witches were persecuted in Massachusetts uh, less than 250 years ago. We still persecute uh, PK stars or super mm -hmm. PK stars, but we don't kill them anymore. We just ridicule them. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who can purport 
to produce a large-scale psychokinetic phenomenon who hasn't suffered uh, some sort of emotional abuse at the hands of other people who think uh, there can be no other alternative but that this person is a fraud. And what I find so interesting about the protestations of these kinds is that um, usually the arguments given in defense of that are weak in the extreme. Mm -hmm. People will say, oh, it must have been... Um, fraudulent, but they can't specify even remotely how it was done. And even some of the most visible of the people who do this, like the magician, the amazing Randy. Mm -hmm. um, Randy was once at a conference of the Parapsychological Association, and he said he was going to explain in a forthcoming book how the medium Dee Dee Hume did his trick. Mm -hmm. It was a nonsensical thing to say in the first place because there wasn't just one thing that Dee Dee Hume did. I mean, one of the things remarkable about the case of Hume was that many phenomena would be going on simultaneously. In any case, Randy never did that. Yeah. And I might just mention uh, for viewers who are curious about Dee Dee Hume that uh, in an earlier interview on physical mediumship, we went into that in, in greater detail. Yes, right. So, many of the people who protest these phenomena um, are usually just posture, posturing mm -hmm. and bluffing about uh, their confidence that the phenomena can only have been uh, fraudulent or that there was something else that was going on. Well, many uh, skeptics have often used the phrase, we live in a rational world, and these things don't happen in a rational world. Science has shown us that there is uh, reason to be guided by, and yet you are a philosopher. You, you've spent your professional career looking at reason and rationality. Yes, I would argue that reason impels us to accept the phenomena because when you actually look at the evidence, when you look at the first-hand reports of the cases or experience them for yourself and look exactly at what's going on, when you consider why the appeals to the fallibility of eyewitness testimony are actually very weak appeals, mm -hmm. um, you have no choice but to accept the phenomena no matter how they uh, affect your boggle threshold. And as I recall um, from your book, The Limits of Influence, when you began your exploration into 19th century uh, first-hand accounts of very bizarre phenomenon, you expected to come up with a collection of interesting psychological oddities. You didn't think you were going to be convinced by those reports. When I set out in the field, I actually accepted what others who had spent more time than I had in parapsychology had believed. Mm -hmm. And the received view at the time was that um, the only evidence worth saying anything about was the uh, conventionally experimental evidence, mm -hmm. laboratory evidence. Yeah. And that seemed reasonable because on the surface it seemed like, sure, these are cases where we can control and manipulate experimental variables yeah. and really get clear on what's going on. When I thought about it more clearly, and when I actually started to look at the evidence uh, for macro PK, and not just accept what other people had told me about it, mm -hmm. I was completely bowled over by the quality of evidence. And what I discovered was that the people who had very strong negative opinions about macro PK actually didn't know what the first-hand accounts were. They had accepted the received views of others who had relied primarily on weak secondary literature or were just expressing their own preferences for a certain way of looking at the world. Well, not only do you report that these uh, 19th century and early 20th century and even contemporary accounts are strong, 
Uh, but you make another claim, which I think is very significant, and that is that we have learned as much about the phenomenon from the case history studies uh, as we have ever learned, maybe more from case histories than we have ever learned from experiments. Well, I think at least we have the potential to learn more from um, the larger scale work than from the laboratory experiments for a couple of reasons. First of all, the idea that we can control and manipulate experimental variables in a parapsychological experiment is an utter myth. I mean, there's no way to conduct a controlled PK experiment where you can make sure that only the official subject is using a PK ability and that mm -hmm. nobody else is using any PK they might have to influence positively or negatively the experimental outcome. There's no way to do a, um, a truly double-blind experiment in ESP. The only information for which you can be blind is normally acquired information, mm -hmm. not telepathically or clairvoyantly acquired mm -hmm. information. I know there was something else I was going to say. Well, but your, here your argument becomes horrifying because you could apply the same argument to other areas of research outside of parapsychology, sociology, psychology, economics. Is there any area that might not be contaminated by psychokinetic uh, experimenter effects? Right. I think that's another reason for the potential resistance to all of this, that people have an intuition that if we allow parapsychological effects in the world at all, they're not going to be limited just to those experiments conducted by parapsychologists. So, at least in principle, parapsychological phenomena could have been polluting centuries of conventional scientific experiments. Because especially if the phenomena are need-determined or interest-relative, mm -hmm. it's not just parapsychologists who have an interest in the outcome of their experiments. Any scientist worth his or her salt is going to be invested emotionally in the outcome of their experiments. Mm -hmm. They want to succeed. The only truly objective scientist, I think, is a dead one. Well, it, it does raise questions. And, uh, and I know, aside from parapsychology, in many, many fields of science now, medicine and psychology in particular, people are looking at the body of experimental evidence and, and saying this stuff doesn't replicate well. There are all sorts of questionable research practices that are uh, contaminating the results further. It's as if uh, large segments of the academic research community are throwing up their hands and, and saying that uh, we can't trust our database. It's true. And one of the other things, I mean, I, I I've sympathize with that, actually. Mm -hmm. But another reason I sympathize with it is that I think there's something wrong with trying to bring parapsychological phenomena into the lab in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to bring whimsicality or courageousness or sexuality into the lab and think that you can really study what has to be in the laboratory situation, a straitjacketed form of whatever phenomenon, real-life phenomenon right. you want to study. Mm -hmm. We have no ideas, I've noted before with you, what psychic phenomena might be doing is in its natural environment. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what the natural history of psi phenomena are. We don't know what it's doing outside the lab. And until we have a grasp of that, we have no idea what it is we're trying to bring into the lab and study. Well, I think it's fair to say that psychokinesis in particular probably has something to do with many accounts of religious miracles. That's one stage of operation. Mm -hmm. I think another thing we need to look at is uh, if we really want to try to understand what Psy is doing in life, mm -hmm. we need to look at such things as people who are unusually lucky or unlucky. Yeah. I mean, I've often thought that 
if psi phenomena are need determined, whether it's telepathic or uh, psychokinetic, mm -hmm. what kind of needs might be efficacious here? Yeah. It seems to me it would be the kind that would lead some people to have well-timed misfortune or good fortune. Yeah. And we don't understand why some people seem to be so remarkably unlucky or unlucky, or why some people seem to be so remarkably healthy. Why people who are lousy drivers somehow manage always to avoid automobile catastrophes, while other people seem to get into trouble all the time. I, I would think the usual explanation is that for any phenomenon, it's distributed roughly according to a bell curve, and you're going to get people at either extreme. No doubt that accounts for some of it, and yeah. I th we shouldn't ignore that. Mm -hmm. But there are some truly astonishing cases of people who are uh, lucky or unlucky. Yeah. I hate to talk about my former marriages, but I was actually married to a woman who, uh, whose entire family seemed to be a lightning rod for misfortune. Mm. And I lived next door once to a couple who um, it seemed as if everything they bought was defective. Mm -hmm. I mean, to a really... Uh, unusual degree. Their cars were always uh, in the shop, even though they had brands were noted, noted for their reliability. Um, electronic equipment would fail to work right out of the box mm -hmm. over and over and over. Mm -hmm. A solid wooden rocking chair they bought um, broke the second day they had it with their infant child on mm -hmm. it. And my favorite example of their misfortune was the woman bought... Um, a poster-sized photograph of what she thought was the Golden Gate Bridge, and she had it framed and put on her living room wall. Mm -hmm. And I had to tell her it was the Brooklyn Bridge. And so here's a woman, <laughs> woman who literally and figuratively bought the Brooklyn Bridge, <laughs> which at least yeah. your older viewers will know mm -hmm. is a, uh, an old image of a metaphor. A metaphor for a sucker or a loser. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> what you're getting at here is the psychodynamics underlying psychokinetic uh, phenomena. Which, uh, and what's scary about mm -hmm. it, excuse me, what's no, scary about it is that we don't know what the source could be. As far as we know, it could be something people are doing to themselves, mm -hmm. just as people make themselves ill. It could be a form of um, psychosomatic self-flagellation, where they're mm -hmm. expressing their own self-loathing or s lack of confidence or something yeah. of that sort. Or, even more uncomfortably, it could be something that somebody is doing to them. So as far as my neighbors were concerned, it could have been something they were doing to themselves or something that their nasty next-door neighbor, me, mm -hmm. was doing to them. Well, I guess the question many people would have is how can we gain an appreciation of psychokinesis without falling into uh, the dark realm of superstition? Not easily. Yeah. I think um, the... Theoretical payoff to this might be the disquieting fact that we are living in a world more accurately described by uh, members of uh, so-called primitive societies. Mm -hmm. It may be that thoughts could kill. That doesn't yeah. mean they always will. But um, I think what one thing that bothers people about this is that if thoughts can have lethal uh, influence. Mm -hmm. Then what does that say about us? Does that suggest that we might be nastier individuals than we like to think we are? Now, I would say that we all have nasty thoughts. Well, and surely Freud made that point. We don't want to even know what's in our own mind. Right. 
But I think anybody who's remotely self-reflective recognizes that we all have nasty thoughts at some time sure. or another. And if our thoughts can be inadvertently psychokinetically efficacious, then how do we make sure that we're not wreaking havoc uh, with people we actually, most of the time, mm -hmm. uh, don't want to harm? Yeah. We don't well, know. It, it certainly suggests if, uh, that if, if we're going to open up this area, this Pandora's box right. of, of psychokinesis, we have some tools available to us that primitive societies did not necessarily have. We have people like yourself, philosophers. For example, oh, philosophers protect no one. <laughs> and in fact, I think members yeah. of primitive societies had their own strategies too. I yeah. mean, if they thought somebody was trying to hex them, they would do it in return or they would erect psychic defenses. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe we need to think more along those lines. But I think there's an encouraging word that I can, I can add to all yeah. of this. I mean, even if thoughts can kill, it doesn't mean that they will. And, we're just acknowledging a possible kind of causal influence mm -hmm. that may, for all we know, be very uncommon. And the reason it may be very uncommon is that if our under-the-surface thoughts can be psychically efficacious, then presumably there's this massive network of underlying thoughts that every living creature is having. Right. And if they're putting out psychic tentacles in mm -hmm. the world, there's going to be this enormously, presumably, enormously complex crisscrossing network of causal chains, some of which may neutralize one mm -hmm. another. And it may be almost miraculous that any of these psychic feelers succeeds. Well, it strikes me that some of the irrational opposition to psychokinesis that we've been talking about might be some sort of uh, subconscious defense mechanism to help protect people from it. It could easily be. And mm -hmm. the fact that it's so conspicuously irrational, that is, I think, very telling. Mm -hmm. That the critics who try to just discount or dismiss or uh, impugn the evidence for uh, the more interesting and exotic phenomena, the fact that their arguments are so transparently weak or that they're clearly just bluffing, the fact that they would resort to arguments whose weaknesses they would be perfectly capable of detecting if the arguments were directed toward them. Mm -hmm. All of these suggest that these people are being driven not by rationality, but by, by fear, I think. Yeah. It's as if a veil of stupidity descends over them and they resort to a kind of reasoning that they wouldn't mm -hmm. resort to otherwise. Yeah. Now, earlier you talked about the amazing Randy, uh, the magician who claims, uh, not always with justification, that he can explain every uh, ostensible case of psychokinesis. Uh, he has offered a, a million-dollar prize to anyone who can produce a psychokinetic or even an extrasensory effect to his satisfaction. And many skeptics simply say, well, when somebody claims the Randy Prize, then I'll believe it's real. Until then, why should I believe it? Well, there are lots of things wrong with Randy's uh, uh, offer. Mm. I mean, you can't establish experimentally a phenomenon in the way that he wants to. And he also has an out. If there's something that he thinks he can't explain away, he can just um, refuse to consider it just because he thinks it's and says it's outlandish yeah. right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. More telling about Randy, I would say, is what he did in the case of the psychic uh, photography of Ted Sirius. Let's talk about that. Yes, that's an example of psychokinesis, psychic photography. 
Um, Ted Sirios was a Chicago bellhop who had the ability to produce images on Polaroid film. The advantage of the case of Ted Sirios over, over other kinds of psychic photography was that it couldn't be excused away as darkroom tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, Sirios wouldn't have to hold the camera. He could be separated um, from the camera by considerable distance. He could be clothed in um, sewn into suits provided by his experimenters. Um, isolated in a Faraday cage. He never held a camera. He was researched extensively <coughs> by your friend, Dr. Jewel Eisenbud, Correct. the Denver psychiatrist. Right. And Eisenbud um, offered Randy on the Today Show on national television uh, $10,000 back in the 1960s, which was a considerable amount back then, to duplicate Sirius phenomena under the conditions in which Sirius succeeded. Mm-hmm. And Randy, with his usual bluster, said, I can do it. And then has been weaseling out of that ever since. And he did this cleverly only in correspondence with Jewel Eisenbud. Mm -hmm. His confident expression on television that he could explain it away was enough for many people. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the entire correspondence now resides in the library at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, so people can see this for themselves. What Randy actually did when Eisenbud demanded that he put up or shut up was to change the discussion altogether from whether Sirius could do it, um, from whether, sorry, from whether Randy could duplicate the phenomenon uh-huh. to whether Sirius could do it. So he just kept trying to sidestep uh-huh. the issue. Well, my recollection, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Randy claimed he's a teetotaler, he uh, he cannot drink and will not drink alcohol, and Eisenbud insisted that he duplicate what Ted Sirios had done, which is to do the phenomenon while stone drunk. Um, that was an unfortunate thing that Eisenbud did, and he retracted that mm-hmm. condition. Okay. Um, he was just trying to get Randy's goat at the time. Uh-huh. Um, he said the important thing was we don't need to um, really specify all too strictly what conditions are necessary. You just need to do it under conditions similar to those in which Sirio succeeded. Mm-hmm. And he waived the being drunk requirement. Yeah. And Randy still never really responded. He failed to keep an appointment where he was supposed to meet with Eisenbud. And he kept trying to shift the focus of discussion from whether um, he, Randy, could duplicate the phenomena to whether Sirius could do it. Mm-hmm. And Sirius uh, died some time ago, I think, before the million dollar prize. Uh, w- no, it was after the million dollar it? prize, but uh-huh. long after Sirius stopped producing phenomena. Uh-huh. Well, uh, and, and that's something we observe in uh, many of the physical mediums and other psychokinetic subjects as, as they go through a, a phase of their life when the phenomenon seemed to be readily produced and then uh, it often dissipates. Uh, there does seem to be a kind of career arc for people who do large-scale phenomena. Um, most of the great physical mediums uh, went through something similar. Eusapia Palladino, whom we've discussed before, um, produced more outstanding phenomena at the beginning of her career than later. D.D. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hume, however, didn't experience any such uh, decline in his productivity. So it's a lot like athletes and musicians, and to that extent, people yeah. who... And mathematicians, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, who seem to be better in their youth than uh, later on. Mm-hmm. But some can perform throughout their yes, lives. Yes, of course. Yeah. So, 
we're faced when we look at psychokinesis with with many paradoxes that uh, the phenomenon sometimes are self-evident to every observer who's there and to people who are uh, not immediate witnesses uh, impossible it couldn't have happened it's true and i, I don't even know what to say <laughs> <laughs> well there are other paradoxes associated uh, with psychokinesis. Uh, one of them, uh, maybe a paradox isn't the right word, but the way the phenomenon seemed to conform to social uh, circumstances. For example, in my book, The PK Man, all of the phenomenon seemed to revolve around uh, UFOs. Uh, well, primarily UFOs. And, and the subject of this book, who called himself the PK man, meaning that he did psychokinesis, if I tried to pin him down on it, would say, uh, no, it's being produced by uh, space intelligences who have invisible UFOs that are hovering outside of our planet. But it was sort of a contemporary version of what we might think of as the 19th century spiritualism. Yes, and I, I think... The reason this is the reason I think what we need to do in all of these cases is to dig below the psychological surface and to mm -hmm. see what's going on, what what the subjects themselves believe to be um, the case, whether they accept a spiritualist worldview, yeah. whether they accept um, the fact or. Th the idea that they're being affected by mm -hmm. aliens, whether it has to do with domestic disturbances, as in the case of the gold leaf lady, mm -hmm. or something else. There's always a story to tell. And it's the only kind of explanation I think we stand any real prospect of uh, getting for parapsychological phenomena, mm -hmm. since I don't think we can yeah. conduct controlled experiments. Well, the problem with, with the case studies is that every such explanation is what would be called a post hoc explanation. It's it's after the fact. It's sort of trying to di deduce what happened rather than predict what will happen next time. Well, I think it's a little early for prediction because uh -huh. we don't, as I've said, we don't know what the natural history of psi phenomena uh -huh. are. So what we need to do is, first of all, to find out what the regularities are. Mm -hmm. When we get some sense of what the regularities are by doing these more naturalistic mm -hmm. kinds of investigations, then I think we might be in a better position to theorize about it. Mm -hmm. What I find so striking about theoretical work in PK and parapsychology is that um, the larger scale phenomena are ignored almost entirely. So anything that calls itself a theory of PK pretty much ignores materializations, table levitations, yeah. and things of that sort. I know. We haven't even talked about micro-PK because there's a whole right. fad there, and it probably deserves another interview, but we're out of time for now. Stephen Browdy, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you very much, Jeff. And thank you for being with us.